At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, it is our privilege to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world in training men for the gospel ministry. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for us, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition-free. To learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. You want to follow up on that, or... No, I mean, uh, I I think that I think that's an adequate summary, especially if we don't have anything more to work with. And that does make sense that him him preaching for such a long time would, at the very least, evidence that he he was a a captivating and and faithful preacher. Um, moving on, um, something that I I'm particularly interested in. I know I know Austin is as well, but this is one of my interests and in study is the first and second London confessions of faith. Um, you, you alluded to the fact that he was likely involved or he was definitely involved in both of them, but you, you alluded to the fact that he was probably prominent, um, in both of them. So can you flesh that out a little bit? Sure. The, the first London is, is a really wonderful and remarkable piece of work that doesn't get enough credit today. Now, you know, our church uses the second London as its confession of faith. We're part of a small association that uses that as well. And I love the richness and um, the depth that's there. But the first London is, it has some, some really peculiar beauties. And, and frankly, on some subjects, it outshines the second London. At least this diehard Baptist thinks so. Um, Kiffin doesn't take credit for editing or writing this. Uh, I'm not aware that we have any record of who has. However, it was the standard case of the time for the most important people or the editors or the compilers or the writers to be the first uh, first ones signing uh, a document and and Kiffin's one of those one of those initial 3 you know along with John Spillsbury who signs it first and Thomas Patient and all of those three men were capable as best i can tell of putting this confession together it may well have been a a, a back and forth a, a combined work uh, patient is co-pastoring with Kiffin at this point. So it would have been easy, I, I suspect, for them to, to work on this together. Um, all three of the men are right there in London. Uh, Spillsbury has written already about baptism. So, um, so I think it's very likely that Kiffin had a, a a role even in the very putting together from various pieces of the first London. About half of it is, of course, 
taken fairly directly from the um, the true confession of 1596. But there are there are other influences there, and there are uh, some wonderful uh, original work. I, I think where Kiffin probably played the largest role, and and this is I would just call informed imagination. Um, is knowing the rest of his life, he would have seen the value. So I think he is the driver behind actually producing this, whether he wrote a single word of it or not. And I do think he probably had a hand in that. But I think he's the man that's driving this because he cares about the political and religious survival of these people, himself and these other groups. And, And he understood that they needed to fight the label Anabaptist. They needed to fight the label Arminian. They needed to fight, you know, these different false characterizations. And the only way to even begin that is to publish something. And so they purposely pick something very Protestant, very, um, you know, very, very sound. And they use the words Reformed and Protestant. Um, that's, that's who they name themselves to be. They just have a different understanding of the doctrine of the church and baptism. In some ways, not so different from, of course, many others around them. But So, so I think Kiffin's fingers are just all over this. He makes sure it's get, he gets printed. Um, later in church life for him, one of the most prominent radical and Baptist printers is a member of his congregation for a number of years. And we know he has contacts with others because he uses them at various points in time. So I I simply think Kiffin is a man with the kind of wisdom, the kind of political savvy to know that if they're going to survive at all, um, they've got to make a sound statement. It's got to be published. It's got to be out there. And so he wants to debate he wants to print. He wants to let the higher-ups know, right? So, so rather famously, you know, in one of the editions, they stand outside. I mean, this took, this took incredible courage. They actually stand outside the door of Parliament and hand out the, the confession. Well, of course, they, the two men are arrested, uh, you know. But they wanted the politicians and their fellow Protestants to know they were with them, even though, you know, and they weren't insurrectionists. They weren't wild-eyed fanatics. Um, and, and that's just, that's that's Kiffin's entire life. That's why I think he's really the driver, the driving force behind um, the first London and may well have had a hand in writing it. He plays, I think, the same role in the second, London. You know, it's usually said that Nehemiah Cox and William Collins are the, are the, the likely editors. Um, I tend to think, frankly, that it's a production probably of, of Nehemiah by himself. Um, he, he wrote a fair amount. William Collins really never did, with one, ex- one very small exception. 
Yes, they were co-pastors. Yes, in that sense, undoubtedly, because the church approved of it. Um, they both had a hand in it. But the phraseology in certain paragraphs mirrors, you know, Cox's writing on the covenants, which come a little bit later. And, and so I think it's Nehemiah Cox. But the whole reason this comes about is because William Kiffin realizes that an evangelist that his church had sent out to the West Country has become a heretic. And Thomas Collier is very aggressive, both in his evangelism, his establishing churches, and even in his writing. And so he writes something that is his theology, and the second title of which is A Confession of Faith. Now, Kiffin knows this is a major problem. They've been fighting for 30 years to prove their orthodoxy. And here's a man who's anti-Trinitarian, Arian, denying all kinds of other cardinal doctrines. And he's well known as a, uh, a Baptist, and he's writing a confession of faith. My dogs apparently agree with me. Their names are Hansard and Gifford. We only name dogs in this house after 17th century signers of the 1689. Keech and Kiffin have both gone to their reward in the doggy ground. All right. But he recognizes that if Parliament, if the king, if the courts think that congregationalists of, a, of the baptized way are even worse than the Quakers, you know, to put it in those days' terms, um, they weren't going to have nearly as good an opportunity to survive. So he collects a group of men, uh, leaders from the London churches, and, and he heads out west. And, and it's clear that he assigns Nehemiah Cox to lead both the verbal and the written response to Collier. He assigned they, the, those pastors, but again, it's led by, it's led by Kiffin. They, uh, they assign that work. And when Collier, you know, rather derisively talks about how young Cox is, because Cox is only like 25 at the time, maybe 26, something like that. And, and he's, you know, he's very, he could be his father um, in age. Uh, he dismisses him, but they picked wisely. Kiffin said, this man has time and he's got the gift and, We've given it to him to do. So, so it's out of that that the Petty France Church with Cox and Collins produced this confession of faith. This confession of faith is an answer to a, a heretical confession of faith. It's not in a vacuum. It's not, hey, we don't have anything to do this Saturday afternoon. Let's write a confession of faith. No, the first London had been out of print for a long time. But more importantly, 
even if that was put back into print, it wasn't going to answer Thomas Collier. He needed to be answered item by item. And so Cox does that with a vindication, and they do that with the confession and and in a few other ways. Uh, But Kiffin makes sure that they write a scholarly response. And Nehemiah Cox is one of the few who can do that. He can do the Latin, he can do the Greek, he can do the Hebrew. He can write in such a way that, frankly, Collier cannot answer it. He didn't know those things. He's not just writing for Collier. He's not just writing for the Baptist churches. He's writing for them and the wider English political environment so that, once again, these are Orthodox, Protestant um, Christians. That's who we are. We're not, we're not these heretics. So, again, this is, this is the wisdom of, of Kiffin and, and these other men, yes. Uh, but he's clearly the leader all through this time. And, and while I, don't, I, I wouldn't expect that there's a single word that Kiffin added personally to the 1677, I think that's Nehemiah Cox, um, he's, the, he's the force behind it. You've mentioned some of the people that have been influences on William Kiffin, including uh, Goodwin and uh, some others, but this gives you uh, another opportunity to speak to who were some of the influences on William Kiffin and who were some of his friends. Well, he loved Puritan preachers of all sorts. We've already proven that by who he listened to, including the Arminian Puritan, um, uh, John Goodwin. I think, his, I think his first wife, Hannah, was a wonderful influence on him. She was clearly a vibrant Christian who supported him at all times and places. In terms of other pastors, though, during his lifetime, he's, he's clearly co- close to, to Hansard Knowles. Uh, yeah, they disagree on some subjects, and I don't think you can find two uh, particular Baptists of that age that, you know, if you checked enough check mar- or boxes, you, you, you know, they would have all had a little different answer to a number of of, of subjects, but he got along very well with men like John Owen and Jeremiah Burroughs and Henry Jesse and, and, and the other particular Baptist pastors, um, including the Seventh-day particular Baptist pastors. I know he had relationships with, with others outside that, but those are clearly his friends. That's the immediate tight circle he's working in. Those are the people that he is supporting and they are supporting him. Um, somewhat of an opposite direction in, in this next question. Um, you mentioned the Thomas Collier controversy and, and the issue with that. Um, I know there are other ones that happen among particular Baptists shortly after the 1689 is published, but what controversies was Kiffin involved in throughout his ministry and, and what position did he take on some of these? There are so many of these, I'm simply going to list them and try to answer each one in in a sentence fairly quickly, because he lived a long life. He was active, you know, from his 20s up until his 80s. And so uh, there are a lot of these. One, of course, was the question of independency as a form of church government, the church as a group of saints, and baptism. 
that that obviously was something that led him, his belief in that led him away from the independent and state churches. Another would have been freedom of religion and toleration. He was on the side of not absolute freedom, but a great deal of toleration. He worked with Oliver Cromwell to try to get the Jews allowed back into England, for example. So, so his view of toleration was a good sound view beyond just, well, Protestants can have toleration. Right? He worked for that. Um, when it came to politics, he was a firm believer in supporting whoever the ruler, ruler was. So he, was, he, he worked against the Fifth Monarchy Movement and all of the other attempts to overthrow um, those who governed. Now, that wasn't always popular, but again, he took, I think, a very wise and generally scriptural course to those things. We've mentioned Collier, um, another controversy that actually ran much longer than people generally recognize is the question of singing in worship. Now, it's sometimes framed as, should we sing hymns in worship? Actually, it started way before that, simply with the question of, is singing an element, an element of public worship? Uh, Kiffin didn't believe it was. Uh, he was on the minority there. Um, he tried to be peaceful or peaceable. I think most of the men tried, but honestly, that controversy went on for several decades. The worst outbreaks were in the were in the 90s, the 1690s. But it was a long-standing argument that really didn't get settled in his lifetime. Um, his view didn't win. And today, if you were to talk to your congregation about the question of why from the Bible would you would you think we should sing in worship? You know, they would look at you like you had three heads. Uh, worship, uh, singing is such a, a big part of worship. Um, another one, and the, really the biggest one that he wrote about, was the terms of communion. He debated John Bunyan famously on that subject. The subject of how did you become a church member? Was baptism a part of that? Was it necessary? Who receives communion? Kiffin took what is generally been perceived, I think rightly so, as the standard, overwhelmingly popular um, Baptist position, which was that a profession of faith should lead to baptism, which should lead to church membership, and those two things were tied together. You were baptized into the church. Um, and it was baptized church members who then took the Lord's Supper. Bunyan, rather oddly, frankly, uh, didn't believe uh, in baptism for membership or for church communion. He was one of the few that argued that way. Now, others argued variations of that, but Kiffin, Kiffin's argument was about the terms of communion became really for the next 200 years the standard argument that Baptists used. Uh, he also argued all kinds of political and trade issues. Um, he was for the Jews re-entering England. He was for free trade, and he was often called upon by kings and courts to, to testify because of his um, deep knowledge of those subjects. So he was against uh, 
small numbers of, of rich London merchants being the only ones allowed to trade in certain things, etc. Well, earlier in your biographical sketch, um, you alluded to William Kiffin's side job as a merchant, and you said that we would get to this in our conversation, and now we have the opportunity to get to it. So what can we learn about Kiffin's side job as a merchant? And um, by way of a second question following up on that, is Kiffin a positive example of how to use money to the glory of God? Hmm. The more we learn about Kiffin's life, the idea that his merchandising was a side job becomes completely untenable. We tend to think of pastors, especially of large churches, and Keach and Kiffin and Knowles and these other men, many times they had churches that involved hundreds of members and uh, up to a thousand hearers. So these weren't small churches, but but they typically weren't what we would call a full-time paid pastor. The churches were small, they were fined, all kinds of other reasons we, we won't get into, but Kiffin needed to support himself. He was very poor uh, when he's married and first entering Baptist church life in the 1640s, 1638 to 1642. Very poor. Through one of these incredible blessings of God, he sends some wool to Holland, and instead of it making his money back and a few uh, more pounds, it just multiplies. And he takes that money and he spends the next uh, months or years, it's hard to tell, living off of that and just being a pastor to the church, studying, preaching, doing these different things. But after a while, he realizes, you know, he he won't be able to feed his, his family. So he goes He goes back into this merchant business. He finds another man he trusts at the church. That man agrees to go to Holland. He starts regularly shipping shipping him woolen goods and importing other things. And Kiffin, in, in months and a few short years, becomes fabulously wealthy. And he stays wealthy for the vast majority of his life. Now, by the time he dies, he, he really doesn't have much anymore. But all of his life, he's very wealthy. He's why... He's one of the ones the kings would come to for a loan or for a gift or some favor. The, the, the breadth of his work is, is just mind-boggling. I, I, you wonder if the man slept. He, he owned ships that went to Africa and the Caribbean and Virginia Uh, Yes, they did probably trade in small numbers of slaves. Uh, He imported sugarcane and all kinds of other things. His couple of his sons and and other business partners and sons-in-law were stationed in what today is Syria and Turkey because Aleppo was the trading center. If you wanted to trade cloth and all kinds of other goods, that's, that's where you had to be. So he had a literally a a, a, a worldwide uh, network of people, and he owned a plantation in Barbados. I mean, he he had 
all kinds of scattered interests. And that all took time. And because he's wealthy, he's constantly being called on to be part of the London political scene and to do this for the king, to do that. And he needed co-elders. I'm not saying he slacked off on his pastoring. I do think it was defined and thought of differently then. And, and they did need and use help, and, and they did that. But, um, but he was a merchant of unusual skill. And, and he took those monies and the influence that came with it, and he used it very much for the protection of the churches. There's the famous story of a dozen general Baptists from up north who were arrested for conventicling, for, for meeting for worship outside of the bounds of the Church of England. And someone pulled out, you know, the law from Queen Elizabeth that everybody had forgotten about. But the penalty for this was death. Well, the Aylesbury Baptists sent word to Kiffin because they knew if these 12 souls were going to stay alive, they needed somebody to go to the king. And Kiffin immediately took their plea to Charles II and saved their lives. Again, money enables all of that. He's constantly paying fines. He's rescuing people. He's paying for lawyers. He's influencing wherever he can. Even when his church buildings are demolished and made unusable, he, he finds other places. He's constantly moving. He owned houses, and it is clear that in some of those, that was the meeting place. Um, so he seems to be one who was an excellent example of not having sought riches, but having gained them anyway, and then in gratitude to God, spending it on his family and on his spiritual family. There's a man named Larry Kreitzer, who has published now seven volumes. I think he says he might have five more. It's thousands of pages of material on Kiffin, much of it having to do with his helping place men in positions on ships and owning this and and trading in that. And again, the, the breadth of information we now know about Kiffin is, is, is it's growing exponentially. It's only now that we could actually start to write a fairly full bio of, of Kiffin, thanks to Dr. Kreitzer's continuing work. Mm. Um, you, you mentioned how he, he would use his wealth for, for the benefit of his family, and you, you alluded to his two marriages, but let's hone in on Kiffin as a family man. What what can he teach us as a family man, and and what do we know of his marriages with Hannah and then Sarah? Well, I was super impressed that you even knew their names. Women in the uh, 17th century were sometimes 
not even named, right? They were just the wife of. Um, yes, his first wife was Hannah. He was married to her for 42 years. They were obviously deeply in love and supported each other. He's very clear about that in, in, in talking about her death. But it's also true that, uh, and, and they had a number of children together, um, at least seven, perhaps more. All of his children followed, seemed to have followed in with Christian profession. Uh, so he would seem to have been a good father and an instructor of his children. Um, he married some of them off uh, very advantageously. Uh, one of his granddaughters, Hannah, was married to one of the grandsons of, of Oliver Cromwell. Right. So, so again, he's in a different social class um, in the 1650s and onward than in the 1640, early 1640s. But the family was also the source of immense grief. Uh, one, of his, one of his sons died far away from home in Turkey. One died in, in uh, Italy. Kiffin claimed that he was poisoned by a priest. I don't know how he knew that. It's, it's clear he had people report back to him. I mean, this is an influential man. This is not some hick West Country Baptist who can barely read. I mean, this is a man who's got connections. And he, um, he may well have been right. He lost his other son, Joseph, later, uh, daughter and wife, and those were all very grievous. But shortly after, a year or so after losing Hannah, he, he remarries, again, very much practice of the day. And he, and he marries a woman named Sarah, who has already been widowed twice. She's probably, she's probably 30 years younger than he is. He's, um, he's in his late 60s or in his, into his 70s at this point. But he didn't live alone. You needed to marry somebody of, of equivalent social standing. And, and she's, she's pretty well off from her previous, well, from her own family, from her father, and, and her marriages. Uh, but it's, it's clearly not a happy marriage. It does go on for 15 years. We, we really hear nothing about her to begin with, except what we know from some court documents where when she married him, she got sued for part of her inheritance and other things, and they were in court for years and years fighting those things. She may not have been an honest person when it came to money. Um, I mean, I don't, you know, I've read the, the material from those court cases. Um, who, who knows who's telling the truth? Um, but toward the end of their marriage, she's brought up on charges before the church. Now, her husband's the pastor. He's, he's one of the most esteemed men in Baptist life. And his wife is on trial for stealing 200 pounds for him, from him, lying about it and, and some other things. And the church finds her guilty. And she's actually excommunicated from the church. Now, for better or worse, probably better for them and worse for her, she dies just a few months later. So the story doesn't really continue. But he doesn't write with fondness about her. <laughs> he, 
he writes about Hannah, his first true love. Yeah. So marry wisely if you must marry a second time. I lost my first wife, my first dear, wonderful Christian wife, to cancer after 30 years of marriage. And I can say that my second dear wife is no Sarah. Um, she's another Hannah. And I'm very, very grateful to God. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been considering William Kiffin, and uh, we're thankful that you've taken the time to consider William Kiffin with us and give us your time. But uh, you mentioned one resource. What other resources might you recommend to the person who wants to learn more about William Kiffin? For the average church churchman, reader, I think the best place to go is still Michael Haken's Kiffin, Knowles, and Keach. Uh, definitely get the second edition because there's some very nice additions, not so much to this story about Kiffin, although there are a few, but there's some other nice, nice things in that, in that volume. Uh, Barry White's Baptist of the 17th century, still an excellent overview treatment. And of course, Kiffin figures prominently in there. Kiffin, Kiffin lives far away from us, right? I mean, this is 400 years ago, 300 years ago. Um, different land, different all kinds of customs, and to help acclimate, uh, you know, Barry White's a great, was a great historian, and so it's just a wonderful way to get, uh, to see where he fits. If you want to be current with all the latest Kiffin reading, you need to go to Amazon and buy the, every volume from Larry Kreitzer's series published by uh, Oxford that you can uh, afford and just dive in. I, I, I'm like Sam Renahan. I, I love every juicy detail you can give me. I love thinking about it. I love the connections. And, and Larry is a, an amazing researcher. I mean, he's filled thousands of pages about William Kiffin when basically nobody else has ever told us anything new about Kiffin in centuries, right? And he's meticulous. So not only is he great at finding it, he then puts it together in a, in a truly marvelous uh, way. And my, my hat's off to him. I think we have much, much more to learn about Cox and Collins and Kiffin and Keach and Knowles and these men because really up until now, the only way you were going to find these things is man, a manual search through English records going from city to city to place to, well, almost all of this is online today. And so I think we're going to learn, I think the changes, the rewritings to 17th century particular Baptist history are going to be significant for the next generation or two, perhaps. Yeah. Mm. Oh, We've you can also buy. Um, you can also get a, a, a reprint of of Kiffin's short autobiographical sketch. You can find that um, online as well. Um, but if you buy Kreitzer, you'll you'll have the first edited and complete edition of that. So, mm. yeah. having. Uh, considered the life and ministry of 
William Kiffin. Um, what encouragement or takeaways would you like to give to our listeners? Well, first, Kiffin is a man of the book. He loves his Bible, and the Bible answers every church question. Tradition doesn't. The state doesn't. The Bible does. And, and that's always worthy of imitation. Secondly, he's a moderate man in a very immoderate age, right? He is constantly making peace. He's bringing people together. He's trying to give advice to solve problems. He was clearly gifted at that, worked hard at it, valued it. And that's why I think, you know, looking back, he may well be the most significant uh, Baptist pastor of the of the age. He set an excellent example for living under a variety of rulers in a number of conditions without giving up his principles. You know, when he knew what was going to happen when Charles II came back, that's why he wrote to Charles. That's why he visited Charles. Charles tried to, well, he did shield him for a couple of years from, from being pursued. Uh, but when he said, hey, I can't, you need to stop meeting, William. I, I can't. I can't shield you anymore. Kiffin didn't stop meeting. <laughs> no, he. So he was a man with backbone, but he was a peaceable man and a moderate man, and that's that's good. And I think finally, he's a great example of just using whatever gifts God gives you for others. He used his money and his influence to protect the people of God over and over again, and and that's worthy of imitation. Sadly, we may, in the Western world, may be moving to a day when other Kiffins need to be raised up. Amen. We have been talking about William Kiffin with Ron Miller. Ron, thank you for taking your time and walking us through Kiffin's life and ministry. So, Thank you for coming on. You're very welcome, brothers. Thank you. And to our listeners, we want to wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.